Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn now to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we'll stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, this is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Now, last week we focused on the intended results of praying for our rulers, right? That we may, and the intended result of praying for our rulers is that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's, that's the hope. And, and so, and also so that we may have the possibility of, of a Christian witness, having a Christian voice within the culture, telling men that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, this, this time we'll focus on the second half of this section, beginning with verse 5. Uh, the verse begins with that connective word for, or because, um, the little Greek word gar. It, it's giving us the basis for the argument made in the previous verses. It's giving us some reasons for the fact that, that the, the Holy Spirit says God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and that prayer should be made for all men. So the Apostle Paul doesn't elaborate, but rather states these two foundations as reasons that prove what preceded. One, there is one God. And two... There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Those two points is what he gives as the reason for what proceeds. There's one God, and that God has chosen to covenant with man, to communicate with man, to care for man. Man was created to have a relationship with that one true God, and, and God has not been silent or hidden or mysterious or, or far off. He made the earth... He made the moon and the stars, the sun, the mountains, everything visible in his creation. Um, every, and, and, and all of creation shouts even of his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature. You know, that's from Romans 1. There are not many gods 
small g, with many different competing, confusing agendas. Like Roman or Greek polytheism, there is one God with a single agenda on this earth. And what is that single agenda? That single agenda is the praise of his glory. The praise of his glory, that all things might praise him. And that, that goal, in a glorious way, involves his son and us, his people. Uh, Paul, in that long paragraph, or rather it's, I guess, a sentence, at the opening of his letter to the Ephesians, explains... But note where it ends and how it gets there. This is the description of the one God and his single objective. Okay, this is the description. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, comma, breath, pause, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. All of that worked out to bring his name praise. You somehow incorporated in God's good will in order to bring all things in history to the conclusion that the praise of God is, is magnified. Multiple gods in competition would not be able to have that kind of single objective. Right? But the one true living God whose will is undefeatable has one purpose, a single purpose into which he has swept us little men he created for his own glory, sinful men redeemed from their sinfulness, right, and made a priesthood to the praise of his glory. As if the reality of the one God and his single objective are not enough, you know, to prove his desire for men to be saved, the next one makes it undeniable. From the beginning, right from the fall, God has promised a mediator, redeemer, a ransom, a seed that would come to whom the promise had been made. 
right? Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Right? There's that promise of that one mediator. The one that would crush the head of the serpent. And in Hebrews, we read about the, the lesser mediators giving way to the greatest mediator, Jesus Christ. Hebrews says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a much more excellent name than they. That one glorious mediator, Jesus Christ. And then later in Hebrews, this explicit statement about Christ's mediating work Hebrews 9:11 but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled, sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Notice that last verse I read says this, Christ offered himself without blemish to God. He offered himself without blemish to God. This, you know, that is Christ mediating between you and his angry father. Christ interposes. Christ mediates. Christ comes in between. Christ um, the righteousness of Christ fills the gap. There are two parties at odds with one another, and the mediator steps in to bring, bring peace. And that's all Christ did on behalf of your soul. You've sinned, the, the, the hymn we sing, you've sinned and the Son hath suffered. you sinned, the Son hath suffered. His death satisfies his Father. You have now been set free to serve the living God. Set free to serve the living God, whereas before before a mediator, before Christ stepped in to intercede, you were only able all the time to serve yourself and your sin. And remember this truth from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. That 
is indeed the promise of Genesis 3.15 worked out. God has sent a glorious mediator, his own son, to fulfill that original promise. And indeed, a promise we would say that he made before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. I already read it. The substitute has been bruised and the serpent has been crushed and you have been ransomed, you foul sinner. Now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There is one God with one will And that will is the praise of his own glory. And he has provided one mediator. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one God, and he has done the work. There is one God, and that God's desire for you to believe is proven in that he provided his own son as a sacrifice, as a dying mediator. Okay? I often say this, and it relates to what I'm saying, um, pointing out the preciousness of what God has provided, but the existence of hell, the existence of hell proves the depth of God's love. The existence of hell proves the depth of God's love. And let me just stop for a second and, and just... Hell is a scriptural doctrine. Hell is horrible. Okay, it's horrible, 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 horrible. There is nothing in creation, there is nothing visible and invisible that is as awful as hell. Separation from the benevolent presence of God only to meet his presence in all of its wrath. Never having your conscience unbound from your sin by the work of the Holy Spirit. Never having peace and rest from suffering. Never once having a moment of calm where you're not dreading the next second. Never once knowing relief. Never once knowing a presence of mind that would allow you to take a deep breath and have hope. Hopeless existence. Hopeless existence. And you say to me, well, how does that prove the love of God? Well, it proves the depth of God's love for his son and the inestimable preciousness of the gift of Christ. Jesus is choice. Remember this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is choice and precious in the sight of God. Those who reject God's gift receive eternal punishment. The punishment, therefore, fits the crime. Unless you, if you don't understand the preciousness of the gift of Christ, the magnitude of the wonder of grace, then hell is always going to scandalize you. But if you understand that Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man, the one way that a man may be saved, right? And that it is simply by faith, right? To reject that gift 
that God so deeply and infinitely loves deserves a deeply and infinite punishment. And so that's how hell proves the love of God. It proves that inner Trinitarian love, the love between the Father and the the Son. Rejecting an infinite gift receives an infinite punishment. In fact, if you begin to if you begin to diminish the riches that you have in Christ, you will begin to diminish the reality of hell. A biblical view of hell requires a biblical view of the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. So begin to take, you know, those who begin to to soften hell, right? Those who posit maybe a doctrine of annihilation, right? There's no hell, but just if you don't know Jesus, you're annihilated into nothingness. Right? And that's an evangelical doctrine, and, and reformed men have gone that way. If you even begin to say that, um, if you begin to caricature hell in any way, indeed what you're actually doing is diminishing the glory of Jesus Christ. You're diminishing his awesome purity and righteousness and glory. Right? Because you just don't see it as a precious gift, and so you begin softening the punishment for rejecting that gift. Begin to take Christ for granted and you will begin to see hell as simply a horror unfit for even the evilest of men. God is one and he has sent his son as a mediator. As a mediator, he, our passage says, gave himself as a ransom. Now this is an interesting word here. This is a combination word only occurring here in the New Testament. It's in the Greek, it's anti-lutron. In other places, only the, the Greek lutron is used for ransom, like Matthew twenty twenty eight. Just, um, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. That word there is lutron for many. But here, Paul says anti-lutron, which places emphasis on the substitution of Jesus in the place of the sinner, right? The, the substitutionary aspect of Christ's ransoming work, he is an instead of ransom, in the place of ransom. And so Christ is a substitute price paid to free captives. We were captives to sin, and Christ, in our place, play, paid the price and so, um, very interesting there, one little prefix that, that pins that word ransom to the substitution of Christ into our place. I mean, it's glorious, is it not? Your salvation was worked out by the triune God. This salvation which made Christ a curse, it made him sin, it made him suffer, made him humiliated, made him even die, is yours by faith, merely by faith. And you can never doubt, dear brothers and sisters, that, that God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Right? You cannot doubt that. Paul was converted and made an apostle to preach that truth. Every preacher since then has been raised up to preach that truth. 
right? And Paul was particularly raised up to preach that truth of the Gentiles. It says in our passage in verse 7. Now, one last question. Why does Paul put that aside in verse 7? I am telling the truth. I am not lying. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Seems like he's getting defensive, right? Perhaps he is. Paul says the same thing elsewhere three times. In Romans 9, he says it to indicate that what he is about to say, though shocking, is true. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, the Jews. So Paul... Paul knows that's going to like be a scandalous statement. I wish I was damned so that the Jews would be saved. And he said, and so he prefaces it with, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. And then another, another place he says this is First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians. He outlines the, the list of horrible things that he has suffered. You remember the passage, three times shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, countless times. He responds by saying that he is not making this stuff up. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Right? He goes to that long list and he says, God knows I'm not lying. And then one other time in Galatians when he's telling the story of his conversion and training. He's, he's recounting how he came to know the Lord and how he was trained. And in the middle of it he says, then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. And then we have the instance in our passage. Now, is there anything that ties them all together? Is there any commonality? In all of the passage, I believe that there are those, simply, as you, you are probably thinking now, that there are those who are denying Paul's credibility everywhere he goes. There are people that are just denying that, that he's an apostle. They're denying that he has been sent by God. They're denying that he has a message. To the Roman Christians, Paul writes of his love for the Jews and and his desire that they be converted, but, but perhaps there were many who were doubting such love as they saw him run across the Gentile countryside. To the Corinthians, he speaks of the things he suffered, but perhaps many took those things as reasons he should consider himself accursed by God. Right? Guy, everywhere a guy goes, he's getting beaten down. It's not a really good sign that he's a righteous man. To the Galatians, there were many who were doubting his apostleship, especially as they tried to hijack the church into a, a heresy, the Judaizing heresy. And so he counters with his credentials. No, here's, here's how I was converted, here's how I was trained, here's how I was examined by the presbytery. Right? To Timothy, I think the same difficulty is, is being encountered. There are some scoffers who have decided to attack Paul's credibility, and he, in a sense, counters it with an oath. For this, I was appointed a preacher and, a, and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. I swear. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The apostle Paul was constantly in a position of having to explain himself. 
To the Jews, he was a perplexing traitor. To the Gentiles, he was a proclaimer of strange deities. To certain factions in the church, he was not eloquent. To others, he was a former persecutor and a blasphemer. To other factions in the church, he was harsh. To others, he was beloved. If there was ever a man that could be attacked from multiple angles, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, there were reasons that every group could hate Paul. Yet, wherever he was dragged, wherever the Lord put him, there were accusations that made his job somewhat easy. The accusations would come. He would spend a moment perhaps deflecting them. But then what did he determine to know? He just determined to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so everywhere he went, he determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In synagogue after synagogue, before Roman governors and rulers, in the Areopagus, in all these Gentile cities, all he did was know Jesus Christ and him crucified and preach that glorious truth. And so as a consequence of that calling, he faced opposition everywhere he went. The reason you and I may not be facing opposition where we, where we are is because we have determined not to preach Christ and him crucified. We've determined to know something, we've determined, or we've determined to be generally silent. We've determined to preach ourselves, we've determined to preach our feelings, we've determined to preach science, we've determined to preach any kind of impure syncretism. But, but the guarantee of Scripture is this, if you preach Christ, you're going to have a life like Paul's. If you preach Christ, you will be persecuted. For Paul, this was a, a specific uh, prophecy to him, right? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He's going to suffer in specific ways for my name. And all the other apostles learned the same thing, right? John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And indeed, it applies to every Christian in any time. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Indeed, even in the most Christian of countries, tying this to my last sermon, even in the most Christian of countries, even if God were to hear our prayers according to the pattern laid out for us early in this chapter, and he created a space in which we could lead perfectly peaceful and tranquil lives, persecution would would not come perhaps in a systematic way, but it will still come when unbelieving parents reject children who love Jesus. It'll come in homes. It will still come when Christians remind others of God's truth and they don't like it. Right? It'll still come when friends reject us for meddling in their lives and talking about Jesus. The Apostle Paul, wherever he went, he determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the job of a preacher, of an apostle, 
and the job of every Christian who has been saved by grace. And so may God give us the courage, the joy, right, the love necessary to do just that. When all is said and done, may we rejoice for all the backlash we receive for going across the road and sharing the gospel with our neighbors. Not just pleasantries, but the gospel. Right? After calling the apostles in, the Sanhedrin flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I want to fist pump you at at the end of that, that verse, right? That's the courage, that's the kindness, that's the love that, that we must have as ambassadors of Christ, right? That is the love that we must have because there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus, you've got to tell other people. They're looking for mediators in all these crazy places. And it's not a mediator. It's a distraction away from Jesus Christ.